Hi. Um, Anthony just very kindly reminded me to uh, tell you who I am and what this uh, talk is about. So I'm Matt Bishop, and the talk is about data sanitization for fun and aggravation. Um, with luck, you may find it somewhat entertaining. With even more luck, you'll find it completely frightening. So anyway, uh, how many here deal with network traces or medical data and such that you would like to but cannot share with people? Okay. The reason you usually can't share, there are two reasons given for sharing, not sharing. The first one is proprietary data. I don't think medical data qualifies as proprietary in most cases. The second one is anonymity. You want to keep certain personally identifiable information secret. Uh, and that's what this talk is about. Um, it's about some adventures in doing that and some issues that arise that are often overlooked. Anyway, just to start off on the theme of it, um, Anton Chekhov was a Russian playwright and basically uh, his reasons for an anonymity, for liking um, anonymity, were basically he felt that every individual's life is based on secrecy. And whether or not you agree with it, um, it's a theme that runs throughout our society that certain information um, should be kept private. With the advent of the World Wide Web, all of a sudden things have gotten a lot less private. In the past, you used to be able to move across the country and hide your identity or change your name or go somewhere else. But nowadays, even when you're on the web, you reveal information without meaning to. Um, for example, uh, here's an article from um, New York Times in 2008, which basically uh, describes that everyone's here seen the cartoon on the internet, no one knows you're a dog, and it shows a dog typing on a keyboard. Okay. Uh, in point of fact, not only, would the not only would various websites know that it was a dog, they would be able to tell you the breed, the sex, and the color of the dog's fur by clues that the dog dropped or by the way the dog interacted with people or with um, the web. So many websites, how many here have seen um, the uh, websites that say, well, we'll keep your data anonymous? By the way, how many of you have seen the, um, if you want to use this website here, the terms of service? Anybody seen those? How many of you have actually read them? <laughs> Okay, there are a few people here who I greatly admire. The rest of you are just like me. Uh, <laughs> anyway, AOL. Um, AOL, back in May 2006, uh, or in August 2006, wanted to make some data public so that researchers could start using it. And there were apparently a lot of internal discussions, and on August 3rd, they released the data. This apparently hadn't been fully cleared because it was retracted on August 7th. Everyone here knows what that means, right? Data is out there. Okay. The, they did very carefully anonymize the user ID. But everything else that they listed, um, they listed five pieces of information, uh, including time of query um, and various information about what was clicked through, in particular the URL that was selected. Okay, this doesn't sound too bad because you have these anonymous IDs, so you can build pictures of the anonymous IDs, perhaps, but that's about it. You can't tie them to individuals because there are no, um, there is no uh, addresses or logins or anything like that associated with it. Not true. On August 9th, the New York Times ran a story in which they looked at the anonymous ID 4417749. 
and built up a profile of the person based on the web searches, figured out that the person lived in Georgia, um, found, figured out the community, uh, Lilburn, Georgia, went around looking and managed to track down and interview the person. So th this will turn out to have several um, implications that I'll get to later on. But what it basically means is that even from search patterns, people can often divine information about you. And in this case, um, the ones that gave it away were searching for several people with the last name of Arnold and also looking in the Shadow Lake subdivision. So they put those two together found, um, and found there was one person in that subdivision named Arnold. And they got her. Incidentally, if you think, okay, fine, but the data is no longer there. AOL, uh, the New York Times uh, looked at the data while it was there. It's not around now. Well, anything you release on the web, even if you pull it down, is available. There's a website called AOL Stalker that has all those records out there. So people can still go and look at it. Um, it makes life, shall we say, somewhat interesting. Um, and if you want an example, here is user, here is a search for users, uh, for the user the New York Times found. If you go down here, you can see everything they looked for and the query they typed that was associated with it and the time at which they did the query. So, again, this is a great source for data mining if anybody is doing any work in there and you want to test things out. Um, this incident highlights a very particular problem. Namely, that when you expose um, information, you may, the data that's exposed may not contain any personally identifiable information, but it may allow inferences to be drawn. And if you can draw those inferences, you may be able to infer from that um, who the person is. Okay. Now, there's a tension going on here. First of all, um, when you release data, you do it for one of two reasons. You either release it to the general public for whatever purpose they want, or you release it to another group for specific types of analyses. And I'm going to focus on the latter one much more than the former. So the group that you're giving it to has got this set of things they want to do with it. You have a set of things that you want to keep private. And somehow you have to balance this ability to analyze the data with the need to keep things private. And it's that tension that causes all of the problems. Okay. For example, um, network traces. If you're looking for attacks on the internet, you, may have, you will have to expose some information. For example, if you're looking at uh, for internet worms, you will have to expose the body of the packets. Because while the headers can give you some information, you're going to have to look at the contents. But if you don't clobber that, then you run the risk, for example, of personally identifiable information being in the messages that you examine and then discard. This, by the way, caused a lot of fun about, 20, about 15 years ago on this campus when um, the question of what exactly an email was and if it is in transit, can we, uh, can we read the email packet or do we have to preserve the privacy of the email by not reading the packet? Okay. Um, medical uh, data. Research in public health, this information often gets revealed, but what kind of information gets revealed? If you have a fairly rare disease and you're known to have this disease, people can very easily link information to you. Uh, furthermore, um, characteristics of, indiv of individuals um, may be relevant. If you anonymize names and addresses and the um, condition is pregnancy, it's a pretty good bet that your name is not John Smith. Okay. 
So the idea of data anonymization is basically to hide the sensitive data. I'm going to use the term sanitized, but in social sciences, it's usually called the identified. And the original data I'm going to call raw or unsanitized. And there are several algorithms for doing this. Um, the first one is just delete the data. If it's not relevant, who needs it? The second one is to perturb the data, add random values to the data in such a way that you preserve the properties that the analyst wants. For example, if I'm interested in the average salary of UC um, employees, then what I can do is release tables of individuals, but I add random amounts or subtract random amounts from the salary. And then people can compute averages that are accurate because the random, random, um, the random numbers will um, cancel each other out. But on the other hand, they can't make any conclusions about what my particular salary is. The other thing I can do is generalize the data. Going back to the salary example, I round everybody's salary up to the next um, uh, $10,000. So if you make, say, um, $52,389, that's reported as $60,000. And then you can draw general conclusion, you can draw conclusions, but you won't be able to get exact values. And one of the fun um, problems of generalizing the data is figuring out how to generalize it in such a way that the person can draw valid conclusions. There's a real problem with doing any of these things, though. I release the data to you. I know the analysis you're going to do. The anonymization technique will allow you to do the analysis. I need to release the data to someone else, or you, with my permission, give the data to someone else. Unless they're doing the same analysis, the data, the results they get may be badly flawed. In other words, for example, I may preserve averages, but I may not preserve standard deviations. So if they try to draw a conclusion, the data will be bad. This, uh, by the way, uh, how many of you he here have heard of the Lincoln Labs uh, DARPA challenge data set for intrusion detection? Um, the, one of the, how many here use intrusion detection systems? Okay. Uh, how do you know they work? <laughs> you get a lot of messages saying, hi, I'm busy. Here's the, here's the problem, right? <laughs> okay. Um, the Department of Defense had a lot of questions about that. So in 1999, um, they and the Link MIT Lincoln Labs built a, a data set that was designed to allow the comparison of different intrusion detection systems. The problem was that the data set was built using, um, what they did was they monitored an Air Force base for um, a few months got the parameters of the network traffic they saw. Since the Air Force Base did classified work, they could not use the traffic directly. And then they generated um, synthetic traffic that had the same parameters. The problem is many intrusion detection systems use different parameters. And so the uh, parameters that the synthetic data had, that the intrusion were not the same as real data. So the intrusion detection systems would report, would look more successful less successful than they really were. So this was a case where anonymization uh, caused problems. Uh, by the way, I do have to add, um, in certain circles, um, anonymizing data is considered not acceptable or considered um, unwarranted. And there are two reactions I've gotten. The first one is, well, you're not doing anything wrong. If you're not doing anything wrong, why, do you hide it? why should you worry? Um, identity theft is usually the two-word answer I give to this. Um, but then there's uh, also the idea of privacy, which has been around since at least the um, late 1800s, where people are, where, where um, the right to be let alone is critical. 
then also there's the answer um, which Scott McNeely of Sun said, which is basically, well, you have no privacy. Get over it. Uh, with that attitude, yeah. <laughs> um, the lack of privacy, though, um, the, my sh the short answer to this is, okay, so I still want to keep certain information private. You may not think I have any privacy, but I'll lie to myself and say I do. Thank you very much. Um, but the longer answer really is that why don't we have any privacy? Well, it's because we don't recognize what needs to be kept private. And so that's basically an evasion or a dismissal of a, of a question that's very important. So what I want to do is um, there are a couple of themes that are going to run throughout this talk relating to privacy. The first one is it's not enough to sanitize data to get it to what you want or for the use you intend to put it. It's, you've, it's, you've got to sanitize the data in such a way that uses to which it might be put also are protected. So in other words, you have to try to think of how the data could be, will be used, um, not just how it's intended to be used, but how it will be used. The second one is this, and this is a somewhat subtle point. Uh, when we deal with data sanitization, typically what we deal with is what's called closed world. And I'll go into this in more detail in a little bit, but the idea is that the data is self-contained. And when we go to de-anonymize it, or someone, an adversary, is trying to reverse the anonymization, the adversary will only look at the data set. And if they cannot reverse it from within the data set, then it is safe. The anonymization is complete. The problem is that's not how it works in the real world. In the real world, you use pretty much anything you can get your hands on to try to do the reversal. The AOL data set is a perfect example of that, where within the data set, they were able to construct an image of uh, a picture of someone, but they couldn't tie that to an individual because there was no identifying information about that particular individual in the searches. However, the searches gave enough, inf the searches provided a good enough picture, a focused enough picture, so they could go out and use externally available information to locate the individual. Okay. Um, oh, one other thing too. Um, when we look at external information, we typically look at what we have available. Uh, the nasty people, the adversaries, will typically go beyond that. And their goals in look, using this data may differ very much from, um, from what, we, what we want. You may not be able to eliminate these threats, by the way. You may simply have to identify them. Okay, so let me, I'm an academic, so let me just try to figure out exactly what we're talking about, right? By the way, can anyone here give me a good definition of security? It's a little bit like life. You know it when you see it, but uh, it's actually defined by a security policy. So that's what I'm going to use uh, right here. The idea of uh, data sanitization is to provide access to data under two constraints. Uh, well, the first constraint is privacy. Here are the rules. We may not reveal this data. The second constraint is, well, how are you going to use the data? Well, here are the requirements. Here's the data I need or the attributes of the data I need in order to do my analysis. And just to keep the language clear, there are several components to doing this data sanitization. First of all, we have data collectors. Okay, they gather the data. They have the privacy. They're the ones with the privacy constraints, so they will sanitize the data. They then pass it to the analysts who will go ahead and apply their analysis. They're the ones with the analysis requirements. 
And their goal is to draw conclusions about the, from the anonymized data that are equally valid from, with the non-anonymized data. So in other words, it doesn't matter which set you use, you'll get the same conclusions. And then there are the nasty people in the world, the adversaries, who do not have access to the collectors, but they do have access to the data set, to the sanitized data sets. And then from that, their goal is to try to reverse the sanitization. Bear in mind, they may not need to do it completely. It may just be they're after one piece of information or one attribute when you've sanitized many. The goal is for them somehow to get information from the sanitized data set that is not present. Okay, um, let me take this down to a couple of concrete examples. The, here's an example. Um, we want to determine whether or not a host um, accessed uh, that network. But the privacy policy says or all origins of connections are private. Okay. There's a clear conflict there. Um, we want to know if the particular host, um, a particular host whose identity we cannot divulge, accessed information. Well, if we don't know which host it is, how do we know from the logs whether or not it accessed information? There's a, a conflict. By the way, I have no idea if XZ is a legitimate domain. Okay. Um, now, if we simply want to know a particular host on a given network access that with the same privacy policy, then we have a way of handling it because we can simply um, look at class, the class network class numbers. So if uh, we want to know if anybody on this particular class C network accessed a host in that uh, uh, private domain, what we can simply do is clobber the uh, low order eight bits of the low order octet of the uh, IP address. Then we've got access. That sounds real good until you realize there's only one host on that Class C network. Now all of a sudden, even though apparently I sanitized the data, I can identify it exactly. So that's an example of how context plays into this idea of anonymization. So let me give you a more general, uh, more general framework here. Okay. We have a bunch of raw data. And if we weren't worried about anonymization, we'd go ahead and do some analysis and then spit out our results and get praise or money or raises or whatever, or fired. Uh, however, we can't reveal that data. So what we do instead is we sanitize it and produce sanitized data. And then we do the analysis and we get the results of the analysis. Ideally, those two should be identical. Okay. The analysis policy, which is really the set of re analysis requirements, um, should ensure that those two are the same. And this privacy policy should ensure that if an adversary tries to recover all or part of the raw data from the sanitized data, the privacy policy will prevent that. And by the way, I'm very proud of that slide. That is the first time I have ever been able to get anything graphical to work with PowerPoint. <laughs> okay, so anyway, in a broad picture, that's what we're looking at. Now, how do you do this? Well, here's some examples. There are a number of different ways to sanitize, and I'll give you the names of some programs that do this sort of stuff in a couple of minutes. Um, the first one is we want to um, look. Um, we want to hide an identity, but we want you to know that if two actions, the, the entity takes two actions, it's from the same entity. So basically, now I'm trying to keep consistency. And as an example, here's a sanitization technique where I'm just replacing IP addresses with other random IP addresses. And in this case, the same IP addresses map unsanitized will map to the same ones that are sanitized. 
Um, but I may not want the adversary to know that those two are from, or the analysts to know that those two are really the same address. For some reason, I may want to disallow that. So in that case, I can just replace each occurrence by a different IP address. So now you can't link things together, at least not through the IP address. Now, there's a technique that is often used um, called k-anonymity. And k-anonymity basically says that um, given an action and a set of entities, it's okay if you can say one of these k entities, one of these 10 or 15 or whatever, perform the action. But you can't get any farther down than that. So in other words, you're basically limiting um, how far down that, uh, limiting the precision to which you can attribute an action. And it is gen that is generally considered acceptable as long as you pick the value of k suitably. Um, we'll get back to that in a moment. Okay, so now we've got all these tools. All right. Have you ever heard the expression, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Okay. The question which we need to ask is, what are these tools defending against? Why are these things so important? So let's back up for a minute again. The threat, is the threat we're concerned about a particular person information? Or is it about a set of people? In which case, if the first one can, anonymity will work perfectly. In the second one, we have to pick k larger than that particular set. And then the other thing is, when is the threat? If the threat is only for one data set over a very limited time, that's one thing. But if the threat continues, and I continue to generate these data sets, the threat changes. Why? Because if I generate data set one and verify that it can't be, the adversary can't get anywhere with it, then I generate data set two and verify the adversary can't get anywhere with it. That makes me feel very good. The adversary may be able to put the two of them together, though, and come up with something extremely interesting. So the temporal notion here is quite critical. The third one is um, what access to the raw data do the adversaries have? Now, notice this is a little bit strange. But earlier on, I said, I'm assuming the adversary does not have access to the raw data set. They may have access to where that data set is generated, though. Okay, the generation and sanitization may be done by, for example, administrator, and I may be an ordinary user on the machine. What I can do then is inject markers. So I periodically put in certain, uh, you know, communicate with certain hosts, ping them, or whatever. And those will go into logs just as well. Now, assuming that they're not sanitizing my pings, then what will happen is I'll see some sanitized data and then a ping, and then more sanitized data and then a ping, and now I've got timing information. If I want to get very um, even nastier, and if they do sanitize the pings, I can make sure that what is sent is very is special, mark up a packet in a certain way. And then... Even though the address will be wrong, from the body of the packet, I can tell, well, that's me. So what I will then do is I'll have a mapping between one address, uh, one of the anonymized addresses, and a real address. So there are various games I can play um, along, those, along that. Um, the other thing is that when you're doing this stuff, um, the common answer, one very common answer is, well, we'll just give this to the people we trust and no one else will see this. 
All right. How effective do you think that is in practice? <laughs> the assumption everyone in the security business makes is not at all. Um, if you want a good example of why not in another arena, I dabble a bit with electronic voting. And one of the um, claims is that if you release the source code to the voting machines, uh, that would cause all sorts of election problems. In point of fact, we have found source code. Well, I shouldn't say that. There was source code for Diebold found on the network. And Diebold claimed that the source code was not their source code. It was very old anyway, and they'd fixed all the bugs. So the point is that this information, uh, basically, secrecy is good as a barrier. It should never be assumed to be, you should never have your security depend on it, not, especially not in something like this. <coughs> Excuse me. Then there's one other piece of information that we need to worry about. What auxiliary data do the attackers have access to? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the adversary, as I said, may not be able to reverse engineer the data based on the contents of that set, but they may be able to do something nasty or reverse engineer parts of it based on external information. So, for example, um, I have a data set which records time of entry and exit to a building. No way you can map that to a person unless you happen to know that Paul always works, uh, arrives between 5 and 6 p.m. So then I look at those times, and when I see people going in, it's a pretty good bet that at least one of them is Paul. So I can begin to do the reverse engineering that way. And this is a real problem, because this sort of thing, there's really no good way to protect against it. I mean, how do you prevent someone from knowing that Paul works from 5 to 6? Uh, it's not going to happen. So in that case, what you have to do is simply recognize that threat and determine whether or not you think that's a particularly serious one. Um, a lot of the philosophy here, by the way, is not so much, let's give up, it's hopeless. The philosophy is more, let's just be realistic about the threats. And when we know that there is a threat, if we can't prevent it, we state it. So that whoever is dealing with the data will understand the, the dangers. Okay, let me give you a much more concrete example. And this is entirely imaginary. The statistics here are all made up. But they'll serve the point. Okay? Um, a, a thief is trying to steal um, credit cards information. Okay? Uh, so what would you do for your uh, records? Well, you'd normally hide the name, the expiration date, and the credit card number. Okay? It's great. Anonymize them. But now the... Instead of the thief, identity thief, we're now looking at a private investigator. He's trying to find out if any cardholder is having an illicit affair. Right? And basically, he's doing this, or she's doing this, by looking at the purchases, you know, buying a lot of gifts for the sweetie. So now you're also going to have to hide the transaction data as well. So we have two different credit card companies' policies. The first one says the PI is not a threat. All right? So by doing the investigation and the, um, the raw purchase data not being hidden, um, the PI is able to conclude that 7% of the cardholders seems to be having affairs because all of a sudden they start carrying balances that are very high. I guess they all have expensive sweeties. Um, the second credit card company says that, well, the PI is a threat. So now you hide the raw data. So this is an example where the different adversary, the nature of the adversary controls what can be released. Morals of the story. 
if the first data set is released on the basis that we're only going to worry about identity theft, the data now the data that's there allows an inference that was completely unexpected, especially when you change um, the adversary you're worried about. The second thing, which is a much, another interesting point, is another person's data can make you vulnerable. Not only is the person who is being investigated vul um, vulnerable for determining whether or not he or she is having an affair, so is the person spouse or the person who, um, who they're having the affair with. Because knowledgeable people, um, uh, cardholders having affairs, uh, that one piece of information can lead you to um, see problems with a wide variety of people. Uh, in particular, the PI may be looking for one person, in, in, in one individual. But from the data, he or she is going to get uh, information about all the individuals. And that's the problem. And also, incidentally, we sanitize the data. Eh, this is a violation of privacy, but it's a very minor one. Let's let it go. It's more important they do the analysis. Okay. Consider cell phone usage. Um, we're releasing medical records. And they have cell phone information on there. Well, you know, who cares? That's not going to reveal. Um, uh, uh, that may not. That probably won't reveal indi uh, individual data, or it's not relevant to the medical analysis. Uh, so we'll, we just leave it on there as an example. Okay. But when the uh, but when those records are released, when cell phone um, usage records are released to, for example, marketing companies, or marketing companies can get access to them all of a sudden that data becomes very valuable. So the whole point here is when you push something out, the people who get it may use it in a way you don't think. This is, there's a difference between publishing data and releasing data. If you release it, if you do a targeted release, then this typically is not a problem. But if you just publish data, suitably anonymized, so the whole world can see it, this becomes a huge problem. And what this also means is that in order to protect privacy, you need to know what threats are relevant. And the threats may not be the one, maybe, well, the threats are the ones that are relevant to what you're trying to do, to what the analysis, um, to the analysis you're trying to do. But they also may be, may be threats that play into, uh, that will arise and cause problems that you wouldn't expect from the analysis. So, again, you may not be able to protect against this, but you should at least state it. Now, let me give you a very strong example. Um, there's an, uh, we have a medical record with an attribute of diagnosis. The unsanitized one says Mrs. D has cancer. Mrs. D, however, has been sanitized, so that's a pseudonym. Right. So, initially, um, uh, we, now we know that for some person who Mrs. D represents, the probability of them having cancer is one. That's what the record says. So the insurance company says, well, okay, but we don't know who Mrs. D is. All right, so this solves the problem of what we would call identification risk, tying it to a particular individual. So the life insurance company says, okay, Mrs. D is probably Mrs. Diana James. All right, her rates go through the roof. Only problem is it's the wrong person. Or the insurance company can say, well, it's one of the, those five people. We don't know which one. 
What do we do? We raise the rates. This is why K-anonymity as a policy is very dangerous. In some circumstances, it's perfectly fine. But in others, it simply widens the target, so to speak. And in this case, though, the data is related. I mean, you know that there's a relationship between cancer and insurance rates, for example. Okay? Or cancer and an individual. And this is a medical record. But sometimes data that is, seems to be completely unrelated can be very effective at, at identifying people. Here's an example. Well, the first one was AOL. Okay. The, that one. The second one is the patient is pregnant. The inference is that the patient is female. All right, it's a pretty good bet. Third one is a medical record where um, race and uh, other information are obscured, but uh, the disease is not, and the disease is Tay-Sachs. Tay-Sachs, for those of you who don't know it, occurs among um, uh, French uh, Cajun in Louisiana, um, a small group up in Canada, and it's 95% among Ashkenazi Jews. So if someone is Tay-Sachs, it's a pretty good bet what, um, the, um, what they are. And here's the one that absolutely blew me away when I discovered this. We want to correlate age and general residential information with um, uh, gender and income, okay? So we get a database, which is the name, address, city, state, zip, all the stuff. The sanitizer deletes the first four fields. So now we have zip code, gender, date of birth, and income. That should be enough to prevent correlation. And income, by the way, will round to the nearest $10,000, just to make sure. It turns out a study at Carnegie Mellon showed that you can identify 87% of the population of the U.S. uniquely from zip code, gender, and date of birth. Uh, Stanford, uh, by the way, said, a Stanford group said, by the way, that's completely wrong. It's only 60%. Now, regardless of who's right, and even if they're wrong, the point here is that data which is completely, appears to be completely unrelated to address, all of a sudden is very tightly tied to address. How do you figure that out? I don't know of any good way, and I don't know of anyone else who does. You, figure, you learn this as you do statistical inferencing or as you work with populations. But this is a good example. You'll discover a correlation, and then an adversary can go back and apply it to existing data. So you have that, um, that particular risk. Um, this, again, emphasizes two things. What we call the closed-world assumption. We're only looking at the data set. We're not worried about anything external. In most, many environments, that's fine. But if you plan on releasing data to the outside world, beyond your research group or beyond a small group in control, um, then I would not make that assumption. Also, there's another facet of this, which we call the uniform analysis metric. It says all attributes are equally valuable. And the problem is certain attributes, to me, may be much more valuable than others. For example, with the insurance company, uh, for medical records, uh, for a medical researcher, the fact that a person is cancer, um, the attribute of cancer may be as important to the study they're doing as um, the person's um, having visited a doctor within the past year. To a, an insur a life insurance company or a, um, a pharmaceutical company, that they visited the doctor in the last year may be important, but it's nowhere near as important as the disease the person has. And so if you sanitize them so that you can get one but not the other, 
For the researcher, that would be fine because they'll be able to get whichever attribute interests them. But for the companies, they don't care about the visit to the doctor. They care about the other one. So there's this issue of how important the threats are and um, how important the attributes are. And what's, by the way, what I found absolutely fascinating about all the studies I've read is I've not seen these identified explicitly. They're all implicit. So reading between the lines helps. Now, um, there are a number of tools on the internet that are available that will do this for network traffic. Um, these are the ones that, that I've seen and heard good things about. Scrub is very new, and uh, if you go to the web page, uh, they say that it's going to be in beta very soon. Um, you are welcome to try it, but I would probably go with another one. Um, TCPMK Pub is by Vin, um, pa Vernon Paxson and the group down at LBL, LBNL. Actually, the ICIR group, but the same group. Um, so that one's actually quite good because it allows you to describe policies saying what parts of the packet header you want hidden. Um, TCP Anon basically reassembles packets at uh, layer 7, does the sanitization, and pushes them on. And K9 allows you to select which um, fields you want uh, uh, anonymized and how to do it. And the particular mode of anonymization, random, non-random, whatever. And then TCP, TC Purify uh, essentially swats the bodies of the packets and then uh, mangles the headers. So um, TCP MK Pub will allow you to anonymize and continue to pass things on through TCP dump. Um, I'm not sure about TCP Anon. Scrub certainly will um, when it gets beyond the beta, or when it gets to the beta. And I believe K9 will as well. TCP URFI will not. Okay. Now, all of these basically deal with um, network traffic. If you want to do, for example, sanitization of radius logs, that becomes a little bit trickier because all of these are focused on um, layer 2 through layer 7. And uh, the radius logs uh, that we've tried to work with uh, don't exactly fall into any of those categories. They're, they're clearly layer, layer 2 to layer 3, but the formatting is not the standard um, TCP IP formatting. So what we did was we concocted a slightly more general approach, and let me just show you what, um, what we did. Um, basic, the basic idea is this. You've got some data that you want to sanitize. So you build a structure that describes the, f the parts of the data, and you build a second structure that describes how you want it sanitized, and then you put the two of them together. It turns out that this is a very interesting um, property that uh, I can get to, but here's an example. Uh, FTP. Okay, you've got FTP embedded in TCP, embedded in IP, embedded in your um, layer 2 uh, um, data. And so what you can do is take this and represent it simply using XML as a tree structure. There is, um, see, I think it's called, T it's called PCAP XML, I believe, uh, which will allow you to do the structuring. Okay, given that, privacy policy is to hide IP addresses. The problem is we have IP addresses in a number of places, in headers and also in bodies. The advantage is in the bodies, they're ASCII. In the headers, they're going to be binary. So the converter, which takes the packet, is going to have to translate the packet into a form where we can tell the difference. So um, we're going to have to supply the context. And in XML, that's very easy. You just, um, you just use a tag to do that. 
So what we do is we take this binary data and simply transform it into um, XML, into an XML structure. And the advantage to this is once you write, you can sanitize pretty much any data using this technique, but what you're simply doing is writing a program that will take your raw data, put it into a structured form. Okay. And then we can distinguish I, the IP address in the header from the IP address in the body simply by looking at the tags. So once we do the sanitization of this XML data, then we have to take this structure and turn it back into binary, something that we can push through TCP dump or through the network. Through TCP dump, actually. We want to push it through the network. And that's where the reverter comes. Basically, it takes the XML structure and simply translates it back into the original format. Now, this is sort of a cool idea, but um, mild yawn would be the way I would put it. Where the advantage comes in is that you can describe the fields in terms, you can use, describe a policy for privacy in terms of the fields, and then a policy for analysis or the analysis requirements in terms of the fields that you want. So in essence, what you can do um, is embed your policy in such a way that it will interact with the sanitizer so that uh, you're, you can, uh, the output will conform to the policy you want. Uh, how do you express this? Well, to put it bluntly, we haven't got a good way, but then I don't know of any policy language that's good. All right? The standard ones that are used to describe systems are great if you're programmers, um, system administrators, um, terrible, if you're terrible if you're managers who don't, haven't actually programmed in years, uh, or faculty members who haven't actually programmed in years, and please don't repeat that. It would be very embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, the nice thing is that um, what you can do is describe the analysis and the privacy in terms of these languages and then just do uh, composition, just put the two of them together. This is a very standard technique and it will, uh, the mechanisms that do this automatically fly conflicts. So you can print out a list of things which say in essence, hey look, if you um, want to analyze this, um, the privacy says you can't have it, now what should I do? And then at that point a human has to step in and make the decision. So anyway, this is um, work that w this is where we're going with this. But so a um, couple of conclusions. Um, first one is sanitization problem is a lot deeper than most people have encountered because of this idea of external threats, which is typically not discussed in any of the literature that I've seen. Um, also because of the temporal element. Once you release the data set, you cannot pull it back. AOL found that one out the hard way. And so if, if time is going to be a threat, if as things change, an attacker will be able to build up um, enough information to revert the data set over a period of time, think very carefully about whether or not you want to release it. Also, by the way, environment, um, laws and customs and such affect the problem and the solution. It's, uh, the, um, you have no privacy, get over it. I don't think would fly in the United States, is this, in, at least in medical um, in medical groups, there's this little thing known as HIPAA uh, that would tend to discourage the release of data um, that's not sanitized. So basically, um, what has to happen when you're going to be anonymizing data and then releasing it is you've got to understand the trade-offs. And more importantly, when you go to release the data, you've got to make sure that the ones that everybody who is involved understands the trade-offs and the people you're giving the data to also understand what the threats are so that they can take action to try to 
protect against those threats in some way. And that's it. Thank you all for staying in a this late in the day. Are there any questions or any answers? Yes, sir. Possibly a naive question, but is there any proof or any documented case of insurance companies using data to um, de-anonymize and change rates? Not that I know of. Um, I emphasize not that I know of. Um, I was just picking a common, um, I want to say bogeyman, that's probably not the right word, but I've heard, I've heard that concern expressed, and that's why I was using it in this talk. But I don't know of any concrete examples. Oh, yes. Has any of the, the question was, um, how many here swipe those little Safeway or um, Nugget cards or whatever? Okay, the question was, all that data is kept in the computer. Has any of that data ever gotten out? Um, I have not tried to verify it, but I understand that the data was, people were considering using the data at one, well, for targeted marketing, the, marketing, the store clearly does it. The coupons my wife gets are different than the coupons I get. Um, but I do remember hearing talk of, of some of that data being made available for health purposes. I don't know whether or not it ever was. But bear in mind that that information is the store's property, not yours. No, no, no. I think it was uh, for a government health study. So, but however, um, there is a, I wish I had the web page. Um, one, play, uh, one group on privacy did a webcast or a web video of um, the future society in which all of this was linked together. And it's both amusing and frightening because he calls up and orders a pizza and the response is, well, you know, you bought all this fattening food at the store yesterday and uh, your doctor says your blood pressure is this. Do you really want to do that? Uh, yeah, okay. And it goes on and on and on like that. Um, it's quite... Quite amusing, but also quite frightening. Yes, sir. One of the problems I run across trying to anonymize data is just needing large data sets of sort of garbage data to replace fields with the garbage data. And that's kind of look nice so that it doesn't make the data ugly. Do you have any there are a number of data sets that are out there if you want to steal the to swapping the data from an existing set, uh, <laughs> which, by the way, can actually be quite fruitful. My daughter and I have been known to exchange our Safeway shopping cards on occasion, <laughs> which leads, of course, to the problem of, uh, gee, a 17-year-old girl buying all this junk food? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, but no, I don't... Um, Typically, what's done is you replace the body with something meaningless, and then you recompute the checksum if you're talking about networks. Um, be yeah. No, I know of no um, mechanisms for that, unfortunately. Yes.
we've been a, we were able, we used the XML technique and we're able to sanitize the data to the point where a researcher in a different lab in our department could look at it. Um, we were not comfortable and our um, staff was not comfortable with it going any further. But it was enough so that the person was not able to reverse engineer it, even if they had tried, which in fact they didn't. Sorry? I said I might email you Feel free, I can point you to the grad student who actually did the work too. <laughs> you know, faculty inspire grad students, you know. <laughs> Did you, you get that? Okay. What, what was the product? T A L E N D. Talend. Open Studio. Open Studio. Free product. Okay. It's open source and free. Okay. Um. Short answer is no, but that's an interesting problem. Uh, my, the domains I tend to work in are network or, or medical. But... Uh, I do a lot of online surveys. And we have a, it's necessary for us to be able to maintain a Well, let me put it this way. If you do that, um, don't worry about anonymizing it because it'll all be different. <laughs> right. <laughs> put that down or put down your porn name, yes. Uh, the short answer is I don't know. What you are trying to do is generate a unique identifier for each person that they will remember over a long period of time. And quite frankly, I think the approach you're using is a perfectly reasonable one. Um, I, let me put it this way. I, I probably couldn't break it, but then I don't, you know, I think that's about as good as you're going to be able to get. Um, you know, because if worse comes to worse, they can always make up the things. Other questions? Thank you very much.